Understanding how God works from both within and outside world history can be a perplexing issue, and it can be so on many levels, philosophically and theologically, or practically and experientially. The bottom line is that God is the God of all world history. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. We're in the midst of an expositional study in the book of Jeremiah. This week's theme is the judgment of the nations, and we'll hear the way in which God designed world history to unfold. Well, Phil, you point out in today's message that God has the freedom to paint mighty acts on the canvas of world history. Furthermore, you say that this very fact gives Christians sufficient reason to take an interest in international events, but that it is also difficult to know what those acts really mean. (laughs) How is a Christian to understand all this? Well, Mark, as we come to the end of Jeremiah, we see Jeremiah turning his attention to the nations as he prophesies God's judgment against the nations. And you know, oftentimes in our world today, we see natural disasters or other great calamities, and we always ask ourselves the question, what is God's purpose in this? Could this be some kind of act of God's judgment? And I think we need to see that God is sovereign in all of the events of history, but we also need to be very careful about claiming that we know what God is doing. Because when you look at many of the great natural disasters, they strike the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Who is to say exactly what God is doing? But when we see these mighty calamities, we always need to be thinking about the final judgment and our need for the grace of God. And I think all of the great disasters of the world should point us in that direction. Well, today's is indeed a grim passage on judging the nations. What might we most importantly learn from today's message? Well, I think we learn, Mark, that God will do his justice in the end, that even if it seems like a long time coming, God will deal justly with the great evils of the world. And what an encouragement that is to us to know that God will do what is right and just in the end. And at the same time, we get some hints already in these passages of God's grace to the Gentiles, that a way of salvation is opened up to the nations. And that encourages us in our own prayers for God's work in the world today, the people that he's gathering from all nations to himself. Well, thank you, Phil. Let's turn in our Bibles now to Jeremiah chapter 46, verse 1, through to chapter 47, verse 7, and listen to God's Word for us today. The Emperor Diocletian, who was a great enemy of God, once struck a medal which proclaimed the name of Christianity being extinguished. As Diocletian expanded the Roman Empire into Spain, he erected a monument to himself with the following inscription, Diocletian, Jovian, Maximian, Herculeus, Caesares, Augusti, for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ and for having extended the worship of the gods. And in this same way, many nations before and since have set themselves up against the Lord and against his anointed one. As we come to Jeremiah chapters 46 through 51, we find an international roll call of the enemies of God. The list runs from Egypt, which enslaved God's people for 400 years, to Babylon, which held them in captivity for 70. And ten nations are mentioned in all, covering nearly a million square miles 
of the earth. These chapters are sometimes called the oracles against the nations. And one of the curious things about them is the very matter-of-fact way in which they begin. This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations. And in the chapters which follow, God says concerning Egypt and concerning Moab and concerning Edom and Babylon and all the other nations, God takes the powers and superpowers of the ancient world, and he very casually orders them about. Well, who does God think he is? God knows who he is. He is the God of all nations. He is not a sort of regional supervisor. He is not a tribal deity. He is the ruler of all nations, and his sovereignty is not limited to a single culture or a single nation or a single ethnic group. If you have a very good memory, you may remember that God staked his claim as ruler of all nations on the very first page of Jeremiah. He called Jeremiah to the ministry, and he appointed him as a prophet to the nations, Now with these oracles to the nations, Jeremiah is fulfilling the last part of his job description. He is taking his message of judgment and grace, and he is going international. And this is because one of the ways that God rules over the nations is by his word. The Old Testament was not written only to and for the Jews. The Holy Spirit took great pains to communicate God's Word to the nations. And as Eugene Peterson observes, these closing chapters of Jeremiah are not second-level works tossed off in a slovenly manner because they are for despised foreigners. On the contrary, they contain some of the finest poetry in the Bible. They display such an intimate knowledge of the ancient peoples that scholars sometimes struggle to know exactly what these verses mean. In these verses are some references which only someone from Moab or Edom or Kedar or wherever who could understand. Consider in these verses all of the things that God knows about Egypt. He has heard the boast of Egypt. Verses 7 and 8, Egypt rises like the Nile. She says, I will rise and cover the earth. I will destroy cities and their people. As you may know, every year the Nile flooded its banks and surged over the Nile Delta. And the pharaohs boasted that they would rise and cover the earth in the same way. God knows the geography of Egypt and also of the other kingdoms of Africa. Verse 14, he announces his message in Migdal and in Memphis and in Tapanes. Verse 9, he refers to the men of Cush and Put and the men of Lydia who draw the bow. And these kingdoms, the kingdoms of Ethiopia and Somalia and of Libya, were nations that contributed soldiers to the Egyptian alliance. God knows the gods of Egypt. In verse 14, he does not refer actually to warriors who will be laid low, but he refers to Apis, the bull god of the Egyptians. Later down in verse 25, the prophet mentions Ammon, the god of Thebes. Furthermore, God knows the military capabilities of Egypt. He knows that Greek soldiers first hired by Pharaoh Semeticus formed the backbone of the Egyptian army. 
And there are a number of references, as there is in verse 21, to mercenaries in her ranks. And in short, God knows just about everything that there is to know about Egypt. As we turn to chapter 47, we discover he knows just as much about Philistia. He knows the geography of the coastal plain as well as the geography of the Nile Delta. He speaks in chapter 47, verse 5, of Gaza and Ashkelon, the Philistine cities which belong to him. Interestingly, he refers to the Philistines as the remnant from the coasts of Kaftor. And that is the ancient name for Crete, which is the Mediterranean island to which the Philistines traced their heritage. And it's a way of saying that God knows who they are and where they live and where they come from. The point of all these details is that God is the ruler of all nations. Most of the deities of the ancient world were regional gods. They ruled one people in one place at one time. But the one true God rules over all nations, both his own nation where his own people reside and all nations where all his people reside. This is what Paul said to the philosophers of Athens. He said, from one man God made every nation of men and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God was omniscient about the ancient cultures of Egypt and Philistia, and in the very same way, he knows everything that is happening in every place in the world at this very moment. Furthermore, God is omnipotent in his government of world affairs. He is working to bring his plan to completion in every kingdom and tribe and nation. The events of the world are like a great canvas where God paints his mighty acts in history. And this is why Christians do and ought to take such an interest in international affairs. People who participate in the community of faith, and I am quoting again from Eugene Peterson, find themselves in a company of men and women who have a passion for crossing boundaries, linguistic, racial, geographic, cultural, in order to demonstrate that there is no spot on earth and no person on earth that is not included in the divine plan. So if you want to know what God is doing in the world, it is not enough to read your local newspaper. Since God is the ruler of all nations, every Christian ought to be a world Christian. Now, God is more than just the ruler of all nations. As we learn in these chapters, God is also the judge of all nations. One of the reasons he rules over the nations is to bring them to account for their sins. And these oracles against the nations are oracles of judgment. Chapter 46 is judgment against Egypt. And in the poetry beginning in verse 3, we are carried right to the battlefront. We can almost hear the officers giving the orders to the troops as they muster for combat. Prepare your shields, march out for battle, harness the horses, take your positions with helmets on. But the confidence of these soldiers quickly turns to dismay. What do I see? Verse 5. They are terrified. They are retreating. They flee in haste without Looking back, 
The swift cannot flee, nor the strong escape. But the Egyptians try to regroup. Their general calls for the cavalry, and he calls for the infantry to mount another offensive. Charge, O horses, verse 9. Drive furiously, O charioteers. March on, O warriors. And yet the counterattack fails, and the soldiers lie dying on the field, calling for a medic. Go up to Gilead and get balm, verse 11. But you multiply remedies in vain, there is no healing for you. The irony is that during these centuries, the Egyptians were the world leaders in medicine. And yet they find themselves without medicine and without remedy. The reason for all these things is what was announced at the beginning of the chapter in verse 2. This is the message against the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was defeated at Carchemish by Nebuchadnezzar. This message tells what the battle of Carchemish was like for Egypt. That battle, which took place in the year 605 BC, marked a major turning point in world history. The Babylonians won the victory and the balance of power shifted from the Nile to the Euphrates. And what we read in verses 13 and following, nearly to the end of the chapter, is the story of what happened four years later when the Babylonians marched down to invade Egypt. According to the Babylonian chronicle, there were heavy losses on both sides. As we read in verse 15 and again in verse 16, things went so badly for the Egyptians, it was almost like slapstick. Their soldiers cannot stand, for the Lord will push them down. They will stumble repeatedly. They will fall over each other. And then Jeremiah taunts the Egyptians with a political insult. In verse 17, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is only a loud noise. He has missed his opportunity. Pharaoh's a big mouth, in other words. He has squandered his chance. And then, finally, the prophet uses this clever picture to describe the Egyptian defeat. We find it at the beginning of verse 22. Egypt will hiss like a fleeing serpent as the enemy advances in force. The picture of the snake is especially clever because the snake was part of Pharaoh's royal insignia. Perhaps you have seen the death mask of King Tut with that snake coiled at the top of the death mask. And that was the symbol, one of the symbols of Egyptian power and authority. But when the day of judgment comes, the Egyptians will simply slither away. Jeremiah not only insults the Egyptians, he also insults their gods. He describes Egypt as a beautiful heifer, which is another way of poking fun at Apis, the bull god of the Egyptians. He's no more than a fatted calf, and we all know what happens to a fatted calf. When God defeats the Egyptians, he is also defeating their so-called gods. The point of all these words of judgment is that the one true God has no rivals. He alone is God, he alone is ruler of the nations, and he alone has the power to judge all nations. We find very much the same thing in chapter 47. The prophecy against Philistia is shorter, but it is no less severe. 
Like the Egyptians, the Philistines will be overwhelmed by their enemies like a mighty flood. The people will cry out at the sound of the hoofs of galloping steeds, at the noise of enemy chariots and the rumble of their wheels. The Philistine warriors will be so demoralized that they will not even defend their own families. At the end of verse 3, fathers will not turn to help their children. Their hands will hang limp. Jeremiah goes on to describe the rituals the Philistines will go through as they mourn their losses. Gaza will shave her head in mourning. Ashkelon will be silenced. O remnant on the plain, how long will you cut yourselves? Referring to the pagan custom of gashing themselves in their distress. These events also came at the hands of the Babylonians. In fact, there is a Babylonian prism now in Istanbul which mentions the presence of the kings of Tyre and Sidon and Gaza and Ashdod in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And there's a prison list now residing in Berlin which records the rations for the king of Ashkelon, among other noted prisoners. These things are the facts of history. Everything that Jeremiah promised came true. And what these facts mean is that God is the judge of all nations. These events are not simply political or historical events. They were the work of God in the world. In many of these verses, Jeremiah reminds us that it is the Lord Almighty, the Lord Almighty who is about to bring punishment on Egypt. This is a holy war in which God himself is waging war on Egypt. And it's significant that Jeremiah often refers to God in these verses as the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts. That is his military name, and it refers to his captaincy over his angelic army. The Philistines are fighting against this same awesome opponent. Listen to their lament at the end of chapter 47. Ah, sword of the Lord, you cry, how long till you rest? Return to your scabbard, cease and be still. But how can it rest when the Lord has commanded it, when he has ordered it to attack Ashkelon and the coast? These nations were punished for taking their stand against God. And it is the judge of all nations himself who has brought them to justice. And the God of all nations renders these same judgments in the present age. The promises which King David made about the Messiah are still being fulfilled. Dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Psalm 22. Psalm 110. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations and crush the rulers of the whole earth. Now, it is not easy to determine or to explain the purposes of God in the events of history or in international affairs, but it is certain that God is at work. God was at work in many ways in the rise of the United States of America to world power. 
He was at work in the defeat of communism in Eastern Europe, and he is at work at this very moment in the Far East and in Africa and in the kingdoms of South America and in every part of the world. And his judgment and his purposes will continue to take place until the end of history when Jesus Christ will come again to judge the world. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. We often think of this as a passage about the judgment of God upon individuals. But Jesus Christ is also the judge of all nations, and he will bring entire kingdoms to justice. And this is good news. The book of Jeremiah ends with these long chapters of judgment against the nations. And some say that these chapters are depressing. Some say that they are offensive. I think, for example, of Walter Brueggemann, who complains that Jeremiah's prophecy about the Philistines is so severe and so raw, indeed shameless. And it is true that there are times when God's judgment is severe. And it may be with some difficulty that we struggle our way through these last chapters of the book of Jeremiah. But the real question is this, is it just for God to vanquish his enemies or not? Is it just for God to judge the Egyptians for enslaving his people and for slaying his king? Is it just for God to judge the Philistines and to avenge them for trying to kill his anointed one. If these things are just, then Jeremiah's oracles are not simply depressing, but there is something about them which is exhilarating. They bring praise and glory to the justice of God. Now, we find ourselves getting a bit squeamish, I think, about the justice of God. We're a little uneasy about whether it is right and good for God to defeat all his enemies. I think, for example, of something that happened around our dinner table not long ago. We were reading for family devotions about the terrible deaths of Ahab and Jezebel. And we were reading a very solid Calvinist story Bible at the time, so no detail was spared. And we read how Ahab was struck by a random arrow and how he bled to death in his chariot and how the dogs came and licked up his blood. We read how Jezebel was cast down from a parapet and how also the wild dogs devoured her flesh. And when we came to the end of the story, a little cheer went up from around the table. There was a four-year-old there who said, Yay! (laughs) And... Frankly, I was shocked. (laughs) I was greatly taken aback. Ahab and Jezebel met such a bloody end that it hardly seemed right to celebrate. 
And yet the more I reflected on it, the more I realized that God's victory is something to cheer about. Ahab and Jezebel, like Egypt and Philistia, were the sworn enemies of God. They slaughtered God's prophets. They led his people into idolatry. And so in the end, it was perfectly holy and just for God to destroy them. And this judgment of God is good news. It is wonderful to know that in the end, God will defeat all his enemies. Not a kingdom, not a person will stand on the earth in defiance of God. And through it all, through all this judgment, God's own people will remain safe. God's judgment against the nations will not touch them. Unless we forget this, Jeremiah speaks these words of reassurance at the end of chapter 46. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, for I am with you, declares the Lord. Though I completely destroy all the nations among which I scatter you, I will not completely destroy you. Indeed, those very acts which meant the destruction of God's enemies also meant salvation for God's friends. So these prophecies against Egypt and against Philistia are not meant to frighten, but to encourage. They mean that God extends his rule over all nations. God's rule over the nations is part of what gives Christians such confidence in the work of missions. You will remember that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us a great commission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we can go to all nations because God is the ruler of all nations. There is no place in the world where Christ does not reign. His Spirit goes wherever His people go. For this reason, Christians venture boldly into the darkest parts of the globe, carrying the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. And I want to end with a reminder that they even take this message to Egypt and Philistia, where there is, tucked within these oracles of judgment, a message of salvation. It comes at the end of verse 26, later, however, Egypt will be inhabited as in times past, declares the Lord. There is a future for the people of Egypt. Judgment does not have the last word, and God's ultimate purpose is to bring all nations to salvation in Christ. The ruler and the judge of all nations is also the savior of all nations. And there are other places in the Old Testament which explain about God's purposes for Egypt, about his plans for salvation for this nation. And one of the most significant of them comes in the 87th Psalm. This psalm is familiar to us from the first line of the well-known hymn by John Newton. Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. Well, what are these glorious things? I suspect that many of us do not remember They involve the salvation of the very nations which received Jeremiah's oracles of judgment. I will record Rahab and Babylon among those who acknowledge me, Philistia too, and Tyre, along with Cush, and they will say, this one was born in Zion. 
Indeed, of Zion it will be said, This one and that one were born in her, and the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord will write in the register of the peoples, This one was born in Zion. And as we read these verses, it helps to know that Rahab was a sort of code word for Egypt. And thus, God promises to bring both Egypt and Philistia into the city of God. There is a place for Egypt and a place for Philistia in the plan of God, not just for judgment, but also for salvation. And this is why God takes such pains to speak to these nations in terms that they can understand. And this is why the Christians from many lands have had a burden to take the gospel into every land, because the names of Egyptians and Philistines and the names of every other nation on earth are written in the book of life. And the promise of salvation for these nations has begun to be fulfilled already. Many Egyptians, and I suppose many Philistines also, have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, that there are Egyptians who worship in this very congregation and come with us to worship God through Christ nearly every Sunday. And we can hope and pray on the basis of the promises of God that he will save many more in the days to come. You see, the same God who purposed to save Israel out of the nations never ceased to be the God of all nations. And he is concerned about the life of all nations, and he has a purpose for the salvation of all nations, even those nations which now stand under judgment, as far as we can tell, may yet receive the good news of Jesus Christ and turn to him in faith. I suppose this is a reminder also that for every one of us who stands under the judgment of God, there is still the hope of salvation in and through Christ. If Egypt and if Philistia can be saved, then surely there is hope for every person and for every nation. Now, sometimes people wonder what God is doing in the world, or to put it this way, sometimes people wonder what in the world God is doing. And the answer is that God is the ruler of all nations and the judge of all nations, and it is his purpose to save all nations. The great missionary statesman, the great evangelist to the Indian people, William Carey, declared that it is God's intention to prevail finally over all the power of the devil and to destroy all his works and set up his own kingdom among men and to extend it as universally as Satan had extended his. It was for this purpose that the Messiah came and died. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise that we have seen some of these things in our own times, that there are people known to us who have come from many nations, who have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And we pause this evening to pray for the work of the gospel in all the world, that you might be glorified in the salvation of the nations through Jesus Christ. Amen.
You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Riken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every last word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word. <laughs>